So this is podcast. And what have you done? Recorded lots of podcasts. Annoyed everyone. And so this is podcast. I hope you had fun. We'll have more podcasts. The old and the young. A very merry podcast. (laughs) And a happy new year. Let's hope it's a good podcast. Without any fear. Fuck John Lennon. Haters. It is Christmas cast, aka Christ cast, aka Noel Fest, aka uh, Holiday Hoedown, aka uh, Celebration cast. <laughs> I love Christmas. This is Christmas cast. I think uh, maybe for some of the people who miss it, I'll just go doing. <laughs> Doesn't have the song, but maybe that's what you know. Pavlovian Lee let some people know we're starting. I think I'm gonna at, at the with the intention of getting more alienating as the podcast goes on, so people can uh, drop out as they like. I'll I'll talk about my uh, love of Christmas, and then we'll sort of move from that into. Uh, like a different discussion about religion, maybe. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of holidays that people don't particularly like or people associate with capitalism in a way that's negative. Um, Valentine's Day is one. Christmas is one. There's also like let down holidays. Like I feel like a lot of people think New Year's You know, there's a lot of mythology about, like, what a New Year's is is supposed to be. You're supposed to hook up, kiss at midnight, whatever. Um, And that's, uh, that's like, you know, there's like a FOMO aspect to it. Also, in this Me Too moment, we should probably get rid of the kiss someone at midnight tradition. Because I have personally grabbed and kissed uh, men and women, willing and unwilling, at midnight on New Year's. Uh, <laughs> and thought that was appropriate. Uh, and yeah, maybe that shouldn't be a thing anymore. But I like all these holidays. Um, I think that uh, it's like a... There's a couple things that are definitely good about it. I mean, I think when you're a little kid, there's like a magic to Christmas that can't really... Uh, can't really be like even remembered as an adult because like I don't even think as a kid that I was that excited by toys like I definitely liked toys and I liked presents or I liked things but I don't think I ever liked a present I got as much as just this idea that like you have to wait and you go downstairs and there's a bunch of stuff I also have there's a bunch of things in my life that people remember as like demarcations of time like a bunch of people have stories of when they figured out Santa Claus wasn't real I can't remember at all I mean I remember I can remember an age where I sort of believed it and then I can remember not believing it uh and I think I was fairly young when I like knew it was fake uh but I don't remember figuring it out it felt much more like over time, I was just sort of like, this is implausible. <laughs> uh, you know, asshole then, as now. Um, but I think it's... Uh, there's a magic to it that's hard to explain. Because sometimes you even know what you're getting as a little kid. Or you suspect, like, you're like sort of, I've asked for this, whatever. Uh, like there's a high likelihood I'm going to get it or whatever. But again, all this stuff, it's like, it doesn't really capture everything that's magic about it. And the tree is fucking cool. I mean, I think we should have trees inside our homes at all times. Um, I know a lot of people have plants. Some people have big plants. 
but it seems rare to have trees in your house. <laughs> I think for obvious reasons, like the scale is off, but I think it's cool. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I like. I would love to have some sort of tree in my house year-round that's alive and, like, growing up out of the floor or something. And then, for different holidays, we decorate it differently. Um, I do understand, like, capitalist critiques, or no, like, critiques of the capitalist consumerist nature of Christmas. Like, I do think you want to, like, rein it in in terms of, you know, what you're spending and, like, how many gifts kids get and like if they get everything they want um there's a real argument for like you know a modest christmas um but you know there's also like the other side of it is like not to sound totally ridiculous but taking time to get gifts for other people is sort of like a meditative experience on what you like or think about them like, if you're sort of, like, walking around a mall being, like, what has my mom said to me this year? What has she mentioned that she's into right now? What is she, uh, in our last conversation, what was she talking about? Was she talking about wine? Was she talking about a book she read? Like, where's she at in the moment? If you do that with, you know, the people closest to you in advance of getting them gifts, whether it's for Christmas or their birthday, that's sort of, like... I think a deepening of the relationship that you can do even without the other person, or it's just like a reflection on what they're like and their value to you. So definitely like gift giving is a very rewarding thing. And I encourage people to do it even outside the context of a holiday or birthday. I think sometimes it's hard to make the experience that thoughtful though. Sometimes you're in a rush, you go on Amazon, you know, some stuff your loved ones like, and you just, click things. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, you can't always engineer these sort of like more reflective moments, but I do think they can come through the process of getting a gift from somebody. And it's like a really nice thing. And then I really just, I think I like the holidays cause I get along with my family and it's fun when the family is together. I really love my cousins. Uh, my uncles and aunts are cool. Uh, I love seeing my mom and my brother. So I know for some people, like, the family stuff is more complicated, and that will affect how you feel about any holiday or gathering. Um, but I think also growing up, like, we sometimes struggled to find time to be with the extended family. Like, I had some cousins in the Boston area who I saw a lot, but a lot of the others were spread across the country. And so there was a feeling of, you know, wanting to see people more than we did, and then the holidays would provide that, so that was really nice, too. We got a bunch of good bakers and a bunch of good cooks in my family, so that's another thing about the holidays that's, like, really fun, though, as I'm older, I mean, this is such a cliche, but this is, like, a fucking crucible for the fat among us who are trying to lose weight. Like, I was actually doing okay pre-Thanksgiving, and then uh, Thanksgiving through now has just been like a fucking, uh, you know, as uh, Bruno said in that movie, committing carbicide. Um, it's just too hard when you're like staying at somebody's house and there's fucking delicious cookies everywhere and every meal you're eating is like a bit too caloric and you're drinking because nobody has to work. Like it's, it's out of hand, but I guess that does lead to you disgust yourself with yourself and then you can get some energy and momentum going into the new year's aspirational you know resolutions and i'm sure a psychologist would say that that sort of like boom and bust model for self discipline is not a sustainable one but it's certainly the one i use um so yeah i i love this time of year i love um I love, like, the aesthetics of Christmas. I love the lights. I love the decorations. I've had the opportunity to have Christmas in a couple other places. I've done one Christmas in mainland China, which was probably, like, the least fun as a Christian because, or, you know, Christian isn't even the important thing here. As an American who considers Christmas a major holiday, 
in China, there's a lot of decorations up. So, like, people are very familiar with the holiday, but it's just, you know, it's not meaningful to them as much. Um, interestingly, I did another Christmas... Uh, I did another Christmas in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, I think, you know, it's like some significant proportion of the population is British. They have a ton of expats, some of whom are from the West, in addition to the British folks. Uh, and it's just like a very capitalist place. So there's a lot more Christmas stuff. That was very cool to see sort of like an Asian take on the aesthetics of Christmas. Um, in Lebanon, it's interesting. Lebanon has a lot of Christians, so Christmas is a big deal. There's also, you know, Christmas and like acknowledging Jesus is something uh, that happens in Islam. I remember I was actually in the Sabra and Shatila Palestinian like camp area. It's not, you know, it doesn't really resemble a camp anymore. It more resembles like a shanty town, but there was sort of like Muslim and Christian Palestinians decorating and celebrating Christmas together, which was pretty cool. So that's another, like, deepening of my like for Christmas, just, like, seeing it across the world. Um, but getting into this other aspect, I also think, like, and I guess this this has to do with, with traveling as well, I like some of these religious holidays. I like the Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve. Um, and it's just sort of like, I'll, I'll try to go through a little bit of a progression here. Uh, like, I think my father, I don't know if his family was religious per se, but they're Irish Catholic. And they, you know, my dad got baptized and confirmed and all that stuff. And he went to uh, a Catholic school on some sort of scholarship as, like, a fairly working-class kid. His brother went there, too. They've described the school as, like, somewhat nightmarish. They don't... They didn't have stories about the priests or nuns specifically being too harsh, but it was more like their attitudes about how the kids handled shit. Like, you know, if kids had an issue, they'd just sort of, like, put them outside and tell them to settle it and shit like that. And I think they knew it was sort of fucked up, but I think my dad also had mixed feelings like it prepared him for life uh, a little bit, like being in that environment. But at the same time, it's hard to know because I also know from my mom that, you know, because of a bunch of things, because of sort of like the take on the Vietnam War, because of having friends who'd been abused within the church, I think both sexually and physically, though I'm not sure... And just like other bullshit around the church, uh, my dad left the Catholic Church and felt, I think, fairly strongly about the decision and, like, you know, did not feel good about the church. My mom's father was Catholic but converted to marry my grandmother, I think. And I don't even know what my grandmother was, like Methodist or something. But that grandfather, Grandpa Simeon, he's like a scientist and I'm pretty sure like a somewhat atheist guy or worldview and I think um, I think my mom and most of her siblings are atheists I know my mom is a very big moment uh, in my life that I think is very good and I will try to model is I can remember I think shortly after my dad died going to my mom and being like is there a heaven and is dad there and she said I don't know which I think is the right answer. But also, she said, I don't know, in a way that made me think her answer was no. <laughs> like, even as an eight-year-old or whatever I was, I think I thought, like, oh, she doesn't believe that, but she doesn't want to totally close off the possibility of me believing it. Um, and, you know, that's a complicated message because I, I don't think I could have put it into words at the time but I I came to understand that as my mom is saying she doesn't know it seems like she doesn't believe but she's not so confident in her lack of belief 
that she wants to bring me to her side. She would rather um, leave some opening. And I think that I will be on the opposite side of the argument with my own kids. I will sort of tell them that I suspect there may be uh, a creator, but also that I don't know. Um, and this this will get to like a theme I'm going to try to come back to, which is like, I heard Eric Weinstein, who works for Teal Capital. I was going back through a couple of his podcasts with uh, Sam Harris and some other people. He's the brother of uh, Brett Weinstein, that professor from Evergreen State. But he has this metaphor for religiosity where, and I think he, he comes to this perspective because this is, I think, more common in Judaism, which is his religion, uh, than in Islam or Christianity. But he... Uh, he said that you should think of religiosity as sort of like boxes in your mind. Or not even, sorry, not religiosity. Religiosity is one box in your mind. Rationality might be another. So there are different things you'll have in your life where you have a particular experience and having some faith or leaning into the part of yourself that considers, you know, that there could be uh, sort of like transcendent experience and, uh, I don't know, some kind of consciousness post-death or a god or whatever, that may be ideal in certain moments. And in other moments, it may need to be dismissed. And he said these are different rooms in your house. And you go to different rooms for different purposes. And not only do you go to different rooms, but as he put it, you may not want to see the dining room from the bedroom. So in other words... Some of these thoughts you can't have in your head at the same time. You may need to go through, you know, one experience really engaging the rational part of your mind, and there may be another situation where uh, some sort of belief is going to serve you better. And I think that's certainly how I feel. And I think some people would say that means you're not religious. But I, I do think that most religious people, if you talk to them in a, you know, if you come at them in a non-aggressive way and say, do you spend large periods of time in your mind questioning whether any of this is real? The answer would probably be yes. And if you asked a lot of atheists, not all, but a lot, are there times where you feel that there might be something, even though the more reliable conclusion you come to is that they're not, I think they might say yes as well. So I, I do think at least in the West, in the United States, we might all be closer together than we think. You know, traveling in more traditional societies, it is sort of uh, impressive but also stunning to meet people for whom faith is reflexive, where they're not sort of the type of squishy faith I'm describing. They're more just like they believe. It's a fixture of the landscape. They believe in God like they believe in the sky, like they believe in, you know, what they see in front of their face. And that is something that can be frightening to me in sort of like the conviction it implies, but it also seems nice. I mean, like I've known people for whom it is such a, you know, gift of strength and inspiration to have such deep confidence. I think in the modern world, it is hard to uh, summon that level of faith. But some people still do. Uh, I just think my encounters with it in the United States have been much more rare. But I do think <clears throat> we should think of, or we should allow people to self-define. So, you know, I guess I'll get back to this more later. I'll get back to my narrative. But it just basically, I don't agree with what is sometimes a implication of the new atheist perspective that seems to be the more literalist you are, the more fundamentalist you are, the more religious you are. And I think it's like, well, yes, if you insist on defining religion as primarily something aggressive and irrational, if you make the definition of religiosity aligned with those things, then yes, it'll <laughs> appear aggressive and irrational. But there are 
you know, literally billions of religious people who don't really exhibit that, who are then just dismissed as less religious or not religious, which is something I get upset about. I mean, another area of this is, you know, Barack Obama's religiosity. Um, I mean, there is some stuff around it that's could appear contrived, you know, like it, it, Jeremiah Wright's church could be seen as just sort of like a way of engaging with a black political community that um, he didn't have deep roots in and was trying to connect to for his political career. But I take him at his word that he is a faithful person, and I think if you have a more open mind about what it means to be religious and why someone might self-identify as religious, it makes more sense. If you're the type of person who thinks rational people have moments of doubt, and if you have moments of doubt regularly, you're agnostic, not religious, well, that's one perspective, but it's not a perspective that others must uh, prescribe to. But back to my own sort of like religious, uh, experience, you know, I was raised in the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, the Unitarian Church has a long history in New England. They're sort of related to the abolitionist movement and was always an extremely progressive church. At some point, they merged with the Universalist Church, which was like a hippie church that had a lot of money and no people. And I think the Unitarians had a lot of people and no money. Uh, and that's when I think the Unitarian Church remained as progressive, but it sort of softened theologically. And the UU Church is now a very weird place where you can go to old UU churches in the Boston area and get something that is not even that far from a normal Christian service. And you can go to UU churches in California and have the service not resemble church at all and probably not hear the word God while you're there. Um, in the congregation I grew up in, I think people who believed in God within that church were probably a minority, but a narrow one. I think it might have been, you know, 60-40. Um, but there was a lot of adoption of religious aesthetics, readings from holy books, um, probably the New Testament more than others, but there'd also be readings from the Old Testament and the Quran and, you know, sort of like Buddhist texts and all this shit. And one of the things you do as a kid in that church, part of their coming-of-age process, is you study other religions, including going to services at other places, and then you sort of like write about your own developing beliefs and present it to the congregation. And like I'm, I've sort of like soured on the UU church because it just doesn't provide the scaffolding of belief that I think is valuable about religion. Like I, I think I would prefer a religious tradition that has sort of like a robust moral perspective. And then if I want to approach it in an a la carte way, I'll decide to throw out what I don't want, but I don't already want the fucking preacher to be like, it's just whatever you want. <laughs> But I, I do think there's there's things to compliment about the UU Church. I mean, the studying other religions things was cool. We got to go to, like, a black Baptist church. We got to go to a Muslim service. And, like, it's just good to be in these different places of worship. Like, you know, before we went to that black Baptist service where there was, like, a band and everybody was having fun, like, I thought Christianity was really stuffy. I didn't realize there were these different ways of conducting a faith service. Um, and I knew very little about Islam when we uh, went and talked to an imam and learned about the five pillars and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And so that was good. Another thing that was definitely good um, is, you know, there were many, I don't know about many, but there were gay people at our church from the time I was very young who were out. And even as a kid, like you knew they were gay. So just in terms of getting acclimated to homosexuality in public, I think we were ahead of the curve. There was like a sex education program, uh, wherein as teenagers, we were introduced to, uh, trans people. 
And I think that was really valuable. Like, I think as, like, a 13-year-old or whatever age I was when that happened, if someone said trans, I thought they meant a transvestite, like a, a cross-dresser, like a man with a wig on in a skirt. Uh, I had no idea that there were people in the world who, if I saw them, I would just perceive them as the gender they presented as, who may or may not have been... Uh, you know, that gender physically at birth. Um, and the trans woman who came and talked to us was extremely open, and because we were kids, a lot of our questions were dumb and insensitive, but she answered them all, I think, having in mind that we were kids and was very honest with us and was not defensive or judgmental of our ignorance combined with curiosity and that was also just a very positive experience and I think still I mean I can't tell how other people think but I do think you know if I look at like this bathroom law I was imagining all these people in North Carolina being afraid of like a transvestite like an obvious man but like with a wig and in a skirt walking into the bathroom with uh, like where their daughters are or something but like that's obviously not what's happening. And in fact, if you do like do some weird thing where you force trans people to use, uh, the bathroom of their birth sex, uh, they will, the result will be that like some buff cowboy is in the bathroom with your daughters because, you know, trans men are men (laughs) and trans women are women. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I think there's a there's an odd thing going on where, like, my feeling, the impression that I have is that the majority of trans people are successfully presenting as the gender they identify with, but people don't know who they are or that that's what's going on. And they think of trans people as, like, these caricatures in their head of, like, somebody who's very clearly male like, just dressed as a woman, or the opposite. Um, So I think there's some ignorance on that front, and I'm still sure that I'm ignorant, but I got some inoculation against it by just being exposed to it early. And I am thankful for that. Um, I don't know that it needs to happen in, like, a church setting, but it's certainly not something my school was doing, so, you know, that was probably good for me. Um... But I do think I, like, by the time I was in college, I was definitely very interested in religion. I don't think I would say that I was religious yet. I think I was agnostic at that point, but I was sympathetic to religious belief. And I found sort of like the holy books of the three major Abrahamic faiths endlessly fascinating. I mean, there was a brief period in Uh, college, where I was also super obsessed with numerology. I know less about it in Christianity, but Judaism and Islam both have sort of esoteric sects that interpret, uh, that do not think the transparent meaning of the holy books is the primary meaning. They think that letters in the holy text correspond to numbers and that there is a hidden meaning revealed uh, through the number patterns in the books. And as a result, they have a much more esoteric interpretation of what the meaning of the text is. One of these groups is the Fatimids, who are in control of uh, an empire based in Egypt for a while. They're like a uh, heterodox Shia um, branch that had a very sort of like mystical and hard to understand interpretation of the Quran that was very, very different from mainstream Sunni Islam and just, like, super interesting. Um, Like, its metaphysics is hard to comprehend but is also incredibly stimulating. Um, So I don't know if I had, like, a religious bug or something, but then also just, you know in college, like, going to Egypt, going to Turkey, I think seeing sort of, like, holy sites that were not, um, not things you can experience in the United States, because stuff isn't that old, uh, 
is like profound in some way. And I don't even just mean Abrahamic holy sites. Like even seeing the pyramids, I think, was like somewhat of a religious experience for me, just in terms of being like, like God for me is no harder to imagine than the fact that human beings 5,000 years ago built the pyramids. To me, those things are like equally improbable. And I think like standing standing with proof in front of you of something as weird and ancient as the pyramids is something that does sort of like throttle your mind into a more open space because you're just sort of like, all right, I don't fucking know anything. So I don't know if this was um, part of my like religious awakening. But another thing that happened to me is when I was living in Lebanon, you know, Lebanon and the broader Middle East has religious identity. If you're if you're driving around the Middle East and you meet people and people ask you, you know, are you Muslim, are you Christian, are you Jewish? It's hard to say atheist. You can say it sometimes depending who you're talking to. It's not that that will be met with hostility. It's just not easily understood. Um, and sometimes you'd even be in conversations where I, th- I think for like the first six months I was in the Middle East, people would say, are you Christian, Jewish, Muslim? And I'd say nothing. I'm nothing. And they'd just sort of stare at me blankly. Uh, and eventually I just started saying Christian uh, because it was a shorthand. Because what they want to know is, am I like a white convert to Islam who's traveling around the Middle East? Am I a Jew who's like either American or European or Israeli who's, you know, uh, maybe on like a stopover from (laughs) Israel or something? Or am I just a regular white person, i.e. Christian? Um, And I think, so I think in a weird way, I started referring myself to myself as a Christian just to tell people what kind of white person I was. And it is the shorthand they wanted because, you know, I did not I did not come to feel that I was misleading people because they didn't seem to be taking my saying I was Christian as I believe Jesus is the Son of God and died for our sins. They took it as I'm from that community in the United States, which I am, or I'm from the Christian community in the West. And I think this this process expanded my idea of what religious identity is, because you will also meet in Lebanon Muslim atheists, where they don't, you know, people will tell you privately they don't believe in God, but their identity as a Muslim, Sunni, or Shia remains important to them. Uh, I also met Lebanese Christians who were like that, but who nevertheless did and will continue to value their Christian identity in Lebanon. Um, and so I think this this confused me a little bit. But one thing it did remind me of was the Jewish community in the United States, because I have many friends where Judaism is important to them. <clears throat> they celebrate the holidays. They will go to synagogue from time to time. Judaism is sort of like a important cultural through line in their family life, but they don't really believe in God. And some of these people will call themselves atheists. Some of them will not. Uh, but in the Jew- I think the Jewish American community has the most flexibility regarding maintaining membership in the religious community while having a variety of beliefs. And part of that is because uh, being Jewish has also come to have an ethnic meaning, which uh, other religions don't. But I guess what I'm observing is that in the Middle East, religious identity has taken on an ethnic meaning, which I'm sure some people would point out is poisonous because it's a barrier. You know, if beliefs are a line between people, but the beliefs are associated with an identity that becomes so important that even if your ideas can be reconciled, your identities can't, then that's a real problem. Like the fact that you could have two, you know, a Sunni and a Shia, neither of whom believes in God, but who dislike each other because they're political competitors in Lebanon, you have really sort of like jumped the shark 
on the value of identity and you know where it comes from like it is a it is a problem so i'm not saying this is a model for anything i'm just saying it allowed me to think of myself in Christi- as christian <clears throat> excuse me before my ideas had changed um in a way that i hadn't before and i think this is i guess coming to I, I don't know at what point I went from just describing myself as Christian in the Middle East in identity terms to actually starting to think, no, I might actually be religious. I might believe in God. I might um, see, like, great meaning and social value in these structures. I mean, definitely part of what was happening in the Middle East was that you know, the sort of, like, mainstream version, even in liberal circles where people are like, don't say bad things about Islam, like, you've got to be sensitive, colonialism was a thing, like, don't say they don't like women, blah, blah, blah. Even the people who are supposed to be sympathetic to Muslims based on their liberal identity are still condescending. It's like a paternalistic admiration, right? Like, it's it's sort of like... Yeah, what they believe about women is bad, but we're in no position to judge because we did the Iraq War. So why doesn't everybody just back off? I th- I think that's what I hear sometimes when people talk. And I think when I lived in the Middle East, I was maybe working within that framework of, like, religion is okay, but zealous religion is a problem, and this region of the world has some particular religious intensity that's troubling. But the part of the story I didn't know, because I was not raised in a strict religious faith in the United States, is just all the good things that life being organized around religion does for people. I mean, I really just felt like... And it's important to say it can be a trap, too. You know, if you're gay or if you have strong atheist convictions, this, like, scaffolding of religious life could be a prison. But I think if you're a more normative person, the social infrastructure of an intense religious community is so valuable. Like, it keeps families together. It keeps towns together. It seemed like such an antidote to the atomized isolation of the capitalist West. Like, there's no fucking bowling alone uh, in the Middle East. I mean, maybe there will be soon because we're exporting our lifestyle to these other places but you know it's just like religion was one more thing that kept people together and it was very effective at doing so even in places where the broader society and or the state was in complete collapse so like it was this weird inversion of the united states right where it's like in the united states we have a relatively speaking competent state that provides a lot of services and value uh, and like a sophisticated society, but people's relationships with one another, their sense of meaning, their sense of moral orientation has all eroded. And some people have very successfully replaced it. You know, I don't think religion is necessary to solve the problems I'm highlighting. It just can be one way. I mean, some of the best people I know with the best relationships are just committed humanists. They don't believe in any God, but their life is oriented in a way that makes them happy because other people and sort of compassion and whatever are at the center of their moral orientation. And I think that's fine. There just has to be an acknowledgement that we need a moral orientation. And I think for a lot of Americans... They're flailing with nothing in the place of where maybe church and family used to be. And, you know, we can't, we can't turn the clock back, but maybe we can come up with new things to replace that that don't have the problems that some of our older religious traditions do. But all of this is just to say, in the Middle East, seeing the functional meaning of religion in people's daily lives, how it helped them organize their lives, how it helped them maintenance relationships... Uh, how it made them feel that they could achieve meaning in their life through living a life 
that God would approve of was just so powerful. It wasn't something I was familiar with. It's something I had sort of heard about but had never brushed up against. And as I said, there are terrible downsides to this. I mean, I have friends in Syria who were incredibly close with people who were living us, uh, you know, other Americans who were living in Syria at the same time. Some of those people then came out as gay and our Syrian friends won't talk to them. And like that's been hard and heartbreaking, I think, for everyone involved. And that is a reflection of the intensity of their faith and what it requires of them. Um, and so it can play out in this uh, tragic way. But I, I did start to see like, oh, I get why this is something that human beings do, which I hadn't before. Um, and I think seeing religion in a way as like a partial antidote or having some of the clues to an antidote to the like the absence of meaning provided by capitalist consumer culture really sort of like shook me a little bit or made me think differently about the world. Um, because I think in the United States, we tend to, at least if you're a liberal, and I was raised in a very liberal community in this liberal church, you often think about how could the state intervene to keep to make things better, even in situations where uh, it might seem historically like a ludicrous context to invoke the state. So you might say like, oh, people are lonelier now. People aren't getting married or like this subset of people has an incredible pill addiction. And, you know, this subset of people has incredible economic despair and don't think they have any utility in our society. And I think we often think... Uh, oh, like, school needs to be better. School needs to provide them with, like, you know, a civic uh, playbook so that they can understand their role in society. If they have a valuable job, they'll be connected to other people. We think of this in such, like, a technocratic way, but it's like, no, they need community and meaning. Those things should not be provided by the state. They don't need to be provided by a religious community. Historically, they were somewhat. So we need... I think new communities, we need new things to organize around that provide meaning and relationships. And I don't really know how to do that. I mean, I think some people thought the internet would be that, you know, people could connect to one another out of shared interests or values. Uh, but I think we're seeing that those, I mean, there's something people call like soft connections and light connections. And it's like your commitment to other people based on relationships that play out online usually remains quite limited. And even very casual relationships you have with people in real life can be very intense. I mean, this experiment hasn't been run, but you can imagine, for example, you know, there's a guy at your church you never talk to. But you see each other and you nod, and you've seen him maybe a hundred times. But you know his name, you know you can recognize his family, but you don't know uh, you don't know much else about him. Uh, then there's a person that you chat with online in a box every day. I think if a Holocaust comes and the guy at your church needs to hide under your floorboards, or the guy in the chat box needs to hide under your floorboards, it seems very human to me that you would rather hide the guy at your church or you'd feel more connected to him because he's shared space with you in the real world. And you, your brain has seen him as a human being, not an abstraction on a screen. And I think that's, um, that's my inclination. Like I said, I don't think we've run that experiment, but that's, that feels very true to me. Um, and so I think you want to forge bonds that have that type of profound commitment built into them and communities need to develop that do that. And I think for me, you know, mine has really been my family and friends. But when I look at folks who have, you know, either real profound challenges in relating to their family or or their, you know, their family are actually bad, like victimized them as they were growing up, or who just have like not particularly close friendships. Like, I really struggle to say, like, what is, 
driving this person because everything that seems like the important scaffolding of my life that allows everything else to happen is absent. Um, And I think this is so fundamental. I mean, I think the sort of like profound... uh, The profound contradiction of capitalism is sort of like if you can distract everybody into playing useless games and entertaining themselves, on the one hand, that means they're not organizing to kill each other. They're not uh, organizing to commit a genocide because they're just sort of in their own world uh, pursuing their own selfish aims captivated by those individual goals, not focused on a broader community. And I do think that has shown a great capacity to improve living standards and limit violence Um, at the societal level, you know, not at lower levels where, you know, relative poverty and lots of things that persist and still cause violence, but uh, violence of sort of a different kind than the organized community violence of the 20th century that I think we are correctly seeking to avoid at all costs. But the flip side of that is that this distraction meaning that you're providing to people doesn't actually give them any meaningful foundation for their life. And there are some things you can never take away from people. I mean, people find meaning through work. People find meaning through romantic relationships. And people find meaning through having children. Not everybody needs to find meaning this way, but human beings consistently uh, have those areas in their life mean a lot to them. But those areas are fickle. Some people can't or won't have kids. Some people will not be successful in their careers. And some people will not find whatever we think love is. And for such people, what does our society provide as a path to finding meaning or transcendence, like iPhone games or wealth uh, or pornography. I mean, these are incredibly superficial, meaningless things that do not uh, assuage the sort of troubling questions uh, inside the human mind and, you know, I would say the human soul. And I think... This is what this question, the sort of like the inadequacy of our society to provide people meaning, the breakdown of old ways in which people found meaning, and my exposure to other societies that despite being profoundly troubled, where people seem to have this comforting foundation sort of guiding their lives and giving it certain principles that made it all a bit more coherent, really changed my my thinking on the whole thing. And I think since then, I have tried to engage more substantively with sort of conversations around religion and what people think. And again, I think it's that has led me to believe that this shorthand of atheist or believer is pretty ineffectual, or it's pretty sloppy, as most shorthand is, at describing what's actually going on inside people's minds. And I think the Uh, the tension between faith and reason is something that every human experiences to some degree. Um, But we are along a spectrum and we are oriented differently. So I I don't think everybody's secretly the same. I think we do have disagreements about this stuff. Um, But again, I, I think one thing... David Foster Wallace wrote a lot about, and this is another sort of like person whose thinking I engaged with in thinking about religion, is he would talk a lot about sort of like the value of religious practice disconnected from what you really believe. And I think one line I'm probably going to screw up is he's saying like, the point of praying isn't to thank an actual God. The point of praying is to get on your fucking knees or something like that. It's like, Yes, you can focus on the God part, like, is the prayer going to anyone? Is the prayer going to be answered? But a big part of the prayer is just an acknowledgement of powerlessness as a way of sort of, like, cleansing frustration. Like, it's like putting yourself at the mercy of the universe. Again, you don't need to 
think of it as God. It's just like you are taking a moment to acknowledge that you are not in control, that despite that it is necessary in most moments of life to believe that you have an impact controlling events, there are also moments where it is valuable to completely let go of that and acknowledge I am just like riding the wave of the universe that is being driven by something else. Maybe God, maybe nobody else, but I'm, I'm taking this moment to say, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but I hope, you know, I hope things get better, but I know I'm not in control of that. So I'm just putting my request out to the universe or my desire or my frustration, whatever. Um, that was very meaningful and profound to me. And there's other things that I think are are similar. Like confession, I think, has real value. And the value doesn't need to be religious. But a regular practice of confronting one's own misdeeds in the presence of another human being is a profound practice. Um, I think it also seems like it was a power dynamic that you know, was uh, sort of connected to a lot of Catholicism's problems with abuse. But again, I'm not arguing that everybody should go to Catholic confession. I'm saying we can observe religion and try to identify what about it was helpful to people and why so that we can think about what we want to bring into our own lives as traditions or practice or whatever. Um, I think also in interpreting the world, my, um, my religiosity, one thing that's really helped me is thinking of the world as fallen and sort of like original sin as a real thing and human beings being inadequate. Um, and, you know, sort of their fundamental characteristic being that we have a spark of the divine and this is what makes us capable of good and sort of transcendent thought and great discoveries but that's really just a spark and the other 99% is these fucking evil animals and that's why we have such difficulty creating civilizations that aren't cruel or grotesque um and you know so when I see things in the world that are very depressing I am comforted thinking it, because Christianity in in my reading of it is so anti-utopian in that it says, you know, a lot of people say, you know, render unto Caesar what is his as sort of like a justification for the separation of church and state. And I think that's true, but I think it's also Jesus saying politics is stupid and will always be evil. It may be necessary for life on earth, but that's because life on earth is ugly and evil, probably. Uh, and again, I don't think this is a compulsion to despair or not engaging in politics. It's just saying God is not interested in weighing in on politics because politics is the realm of man and the realm of man is fucked. And I still think it's our job on earth to try to improve politics or whatever. But if you if you go through life with this framework of the sort of selfishness and fallen nature of man will spoil everything we try to do in some way, small or large. You are never surprised by the bad things that happen, um, which maybe shouldn't be your only goal in life. But again, I don't think it prompts hopelessness because there still is undeniable progress and the spark of the divine, you know, can lead us to the right path from time to time. But it's... Um, it's a consistent thing that we are we are falling short of ideals that we know if we all held and acted upon, the world would be better. And I think that is our nature, to be sort of tortured by the knowledge that we are incapable of getting ourselves to a better place all at once. But nevertheless, you know, we climb one step further up the mountain. But the Christian thing is that sort of, and, and many secular people believe this too, by the way, but I got to this conclusion through Christianity. In this metaphor, there is no mountaintop. Life is just that you keep climbing. Perhaps the afterlife is the mountaintop and you get to be with God 
uh, and it's some sort of end. I don't know. But life is just continuing to try to climb up the mountain. But there's nowhere to go. It's just a climb. Uh, and maybe being higher up the mountain is better. But we don't really even know that. Um, so, yeah, like that's – it's just – it's very helpful to me. And I think also having like an ancient moral framework or reference uh, to a society whose moral character and opinions are changing so rapidly is also helpful to just sort of like – you know, as the ground is moving underneath your feet, to have some solid plot of land you can walk over to and maybe take a breather, make a reference. I mean, you know, my goal is not to stay there. It is not to read the old books as a meaningful contemporary moral guide. Though I do think there are many interesting arguments that, you know, apply to our own arguments about the Constitution, per se. There's the letter of the law and there's the spirit of the law. I think the Quran, the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, they have a lot of progressive spirit and they have a lot of ugly letter. Uh, and it's sort of up to religious people to decide which of those we are more required uh, to live out by God. And I think, you know religious communities on earth up till now have been moving from letter to spirit. And I think some people observe that and say, oh, you're getting less religious. But I don't see it that way. I mean, you know, Supreme Court justices who want to ignore the letter of the Second Amendment in favor of the spirit uh, are not less into the Constitution, I don't think. They just think the meaning provided by the Constitution is slightly different, you know. Um, so yeah, and there's so many things like that. You know, I, I think like the fallen nature of man is one thing. I think the perspective on sort of like politics being outside of God's domain because it's sort of fundamentally evil is, is another. Um, and you know, also I just think like narratives of redemption are so powerful. Um, and it's, you know, a major theme and, you know, I feel like People really hate the story of Job and reference it uh, as sort of like a sign of like God being demented or whatever. But I, I really love the story of Job because I do think, and this is a place we can't get our brains to go, but it's like if there is an eternal kingdom of heaven, if there are souls, if there is an afterlife, if God created the universe then his cruelty to man needs to be seen in reference to that. Uh, and if what awaits Job is eternal life, you know, what was done to him may seem different than if he just dies and his life was suffering. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't believe enough in a literal afterlife to... Uh, to, to make that conclusion, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, I suspect death is the obliteration of individual consciousness, which I'm sure some people would say makes me not a Christian, but I don't know. I just don't know. Um, but I find these ideas and this reference guide so valuable. And I think it has oriented my life differently. Um, and so to end, I just want to read this may seem unrelated to some people, um, but I think for me, the path of getting engaged with sort of like mass atrocities on earth and human rights stuff or whatever is linked to my own religiosity, which relates back to Job. I think for some reason, when some people see, say, what's happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar or what's happening to Syrians in their civil war, Seeing this makes them less able to believe in, uh, you know, a just and loving God or any God at all. I think for me, seeing the world that humans make for themselves and its violence and terror makes me believe there might be something else. I can't really explain the logic of that. I know many people have the exact opposite reaction, um... Why would a God allow this to happen, et cetera, et cetera? But that is not my reaction for whatever reason. My reaction is more like this world is suffering 
and your task is to alleviate suffering. And that is not the orientation that capitalism encourages. And so I just want to end. This also was brought to my attention by Eric Weinstein. Uh, and I think I'm going to post it on my, uh, on my Facebook. Um, it's a, a short essay by a European Jew um, in 1944 as the Holocaust was underway and the United States, uh, you know, people did not believe what they had evidence of was happening. And this guy, what's his name? Arthur Kessler, K-O-E-S-T-L-E-R, wrote in the New York Times in 1944 an essay called On Disbelieving Atrocities. And the essay starts with him talking about a dream he has where he's stuck in a thicket and someone is murdering him and he can see outside the thicket to life just going on, people walking by, laughing, talking to each other. Um, and he's just, he's talking about why, in spite of evidence, it's so hard to get people to believe that the Holocaust is happening. And here's a, I'm going to read a section from the middle of the essay and then the end of the essay. He says, we, the screamers, have been at it now for about 10 years. We started on the night when the epileptic van der Lubbe set fire to the German parliament. We said, if you don't quench those flames at once, they will spread all over the world. You thought we were maniacs. At present, we have the mania of trying to tell you about the killing by hot steam, mass electrocution, and live burial of the total Jewish population of Europe. So far, three million have died. It is the greatest mass killing in recorded history, and it goes on daily, hourly, as regularly as the ticking of your watch. I have photographs before me on the desk while I am writing this, and the accounts for my emotion and and this accounts for my emotion and bitterness. People died to smuggle them out of Poland. They thought it was worthwhile. The facts have been published in pamphlets, white books, newspapers, magazines, and whatnot. But the other day, I met one of the best-known American journalists over here. He told me that in the course of some recent public opinion survey, nine out of ten average American citizens, when asked whether they believed that the Nazis commit atrocities, answered that it was all propaganda and lies. They didn't believe a word of it. And then at the end of the essay, he writes, he's talking about uh, a man who he worked with who would spend two minutes a day imagining himself in a concentration camp. This is an American guy. He said after two months of this practice, uh, the man had a nervous breakdown. In the last paragraph, after describing this man and what he does, uh, Arthur Kessler writes, I think one should imitate his example. Two minutes of this kind of exercise per day with closed eyes after reading the morning paper are at present more necessary to us than the physical jerks and breathing the yogi way. It might even be a substitute for going to church. For as long as there are people on the road and victims in the thicket divided by dream barriers, this will remain a phony civilization. And so he's, I, I think what he's saying is whatever we've built in the West if the West is incapable of responding to the crimes of the Holocaust, it's a phony civilization. Because human beings need to be oriented towards caring about things like the Holocaust. And I will just say, you know, in my work on Syria, it was not possible to get people to care with pictures or with information. I mean, some people care. People care to different degrees. I mean, I don't even care enough to, you know, go fight or be in a camp on the border. Um, another example, the Rohingya. The Rohingya, it's a genocide. Uh, our government doesn't want to call it a genocide. Other governments don't want to call it a genocide. It's a genocide. It's a group of people who are currently being erased from the earth. And despite the fact that the Holocaust happened, despite that you know, the mass killings in Eastern Europe happened, Rwanda, everything we've been through, there is no infrastructure to mobilize to do something about that. And I guess what I'm saying is that is a sign to me that we are a phony civilization. If we have built this complex uh, society and civilization where none of our infrastructure is oriented towards preventing the worst things imaginable happening to other people, then we are phony. The worth of what we've made is extremely limited. 
Um, and I think for me, that results in profound dissatisfaction and disillusionment with modernity. Because I was sort of told that, you know, the point of humanism and the internet and connectivity and uh, mass media was that these things couldn't happen anymore. Because we'd have pictures, because people would know, because people talk to each other. There's too much information. No, it still happens. Nobody cares. The Rohingya's on the news every night. There's no plan. There's no intervention. They will continue to die until they're gone. And I think if the world we've built can't address that, then it's not an important world we've built. Um, And for me that space has to be filled by God. And I know for other people, it's not the same. They want some real-world change. Uh, They want some real thing they can hold on to, not just a fantasy in the face of humans' inadequacy. I mean, maybe even to some of you listening, this feels like an incredible cop-out. But I have to put... God and sort of like a moral trajectory for humanity running through this through line of like a universal morality that I believe in as the thing that is more valuable than all this bullshit we've built because I can't look at the stuff and think, oh, this is good enough. Um, And I'm sure some people feel the exact same way, but don't, don't retreat into faith. Uh, but that is my strategy for the time being. Merry Christmas. <laughs>